Well, let's pray before this message here. Father, I thank you uh, for words you've given me and, and for this message. And, and uh, I just pray that it touches the hearts and minds of those who will hear. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we, uh, we I, did a sermon on, you know, the Harmony Vineyard Way and the five tenets. And, and uh, we're going to keep emphasizing that. I've got a um, graphic designer working on some art that we're going to get up so that there's that reminder in front of us all the time and for anyone new that comes in that this is the way that we want to do church. This is the way that we want to function as a body. And um, as I mentioned last week, the fourth one of those tenets is about diversity. And just to remind you, refresh your mind, or if you weren't here, tenant number four says, we are committed to ethnic diversity. We believe all churches, and specifically our church family, should consist of people from every uh, nation, tribe, and people. God's picture of the church in the book of Revelation. And one of the ways that we demonstrate that type of commitment to diversity, uh, hello, Baze. <laughs> <laughs> you have something you'd like to say? <laughs> no? Okay. You just want to talk over me, right? Um, one of the ways we wanted to sort of acknowledge that and to um, show our support for that is to acknowledge certain events or happenings that are important to a culture or an ethnicity that's different from our own. And... Um, and to black people, tomorrow is an important day. Now, I want to say something right here. I, um, I have a new friend. His name is uh, Jonathan Wickard, and he pastors a church in Powhatan, Virginia. And it is a church that, uh, and he is white, and he has taken this rural church and has gotten it to a point that it is like 30 to 40% uh, black and other ethnicities. And he was telling me that he was, uh, you know, he was trying to be very politically correct and, you know, from the pulpit and other places, and he would always say African-American. And he said that uh, his worship leader, who is an African-American named Danielle, came up to him one day and she said, Pastor, I would really like to uh, uh, say something to you if it's okay. And she was, and he was like, well, well sure. And she said, I just want to tell you that you don't have to be so PC. He says, you can call us black. We know we're black. We all have mirrors. We look in them every day. And when we look, we see, hey, I'm black. So she said, you can call us black. It's okay. So I'm going to dispense with the political correctness and just use that term as well. Um, so... What we're acknowledging is that tomorrow, you know, is a day that's been set aside to honor Dr. Martin, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it's always the third Monday of January, which is typically close to his birthday, which was January 15th or, or last Thursday. And if you will recall, last year I celebrated this day by reading uh, the, um, something that he wrote called Paul's Letter to American Christians. And um, if you don't recall that or if you're not familiar with it, I would highly encourage you 
to find it on the internet. It's not hard. It's uh, just, you know, put that as a search term. Paul's letter to American Christians, and you'll find multiple versions of it. Uh, but it's definitely worth reading, and it's amazing how timely it is almost 60 years later, uh, how true some of, its, uh, of it still is. Uh, and so this year, I have chosen to focus on what many, many people believe was his crowning achievement, and that is his I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered on August 28, 1963, at the uh, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom which was its official name. It was also called the Great March on Washington, and it was one of the largest human rights rallies in American history. It also, uh, as a result of that march and the after effects of it, um, it led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So there was some very influential legislation that resulted from uh, that march. Now most of you have probably seen some clips. You've probably heard you know, a lot of the famous lines that are quoted uh, quite often uh, from it. But there are a few things that I have found that people that you probably didn't know about it that I thought were kind of interesting to share. And so I thought I would share those with you today. Um, the dream rhetoric that Dr. King used in his speech wasn't new. He had used that language on many other occasions, which he himself said, uh, in speeches that are just lesser known, you know, or maybe weren't recorded. What I thought was fascinating was the night before the speech, one of his advisors, a man named Wyatt Walker, suggested that he not use any of that dream stuff during the March on Washington speech because he called it trite and cliché. The day before the speech, King and his advisors met to discuss the speech in the lobby of the Willard Hotel because it would be harder to wiretap than a suite. The original draft of the speech was entitled Normalcy Never Again, and it didn't contain any references at all to King's dreams. He told an aide before the speech that he was really hoping that he could deliver a kind of a Gettysburg address. I think he nailed that one. He was the final speaker on that day, and there were a number of attendees who were hot and tired and had, had come a long way and had a long way to go home that actually already left before he even took the podium. And so in the midst of the speech, he put aside his prepared remarks and sort of extemporaneously delved into this dream speech, which is even more amazing when you listen to it to think that at some point he just starts speaking off the cuff. The reason he did it, supposedly, and I, you know, there's no way to, I guess, verify this 100%, but Mahalia Jackson was a noted gospel singer. She had sung two hymns just before he got up to, to speak. And so while he's in the middle of his speech, supposedly she goes, tell him about the dream, Martin. And at that point, he launches into uh, the dream speech. You know, he borrowed a long passage in the speech about freedom ringing from various mountains across this country uh, from a 1952 speech by the Reverend Archibald Carey. What I thought, also thought was interesting was that President Kennedy was watching this from the White House. And his comment was, that guy is really good. 
not quite as enamored as President Kennedy, was the head of the FBI's Domestic Intelligence Division, who two days later wrote a memo that said that that speech solidified King as the most dangerous Negro of the future of the, in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. Many of the next day's newspapers uh, completely overlooked the whole dream section of the speech, and in fact, very few of them actually reported on the speech at all. They tended to focus more on the spectacle of the march itself and the fact that there were you know, 250,000 or thereabouts gathered on the mall uh, to, to, for this uh, march. It's uh, doubtful that everybody in the audience heard the speech, but uh, there was the possibility that no one would have heard it because the sound system was sabotaged that day. And fortunately, Robert Kennedy found out about it and he called in the Army Corps of Engineers and they were able to repair the sound system so that it actually worked uh, for the speech. Uh, as a result of giving the speech, King was named Times Magazine, Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1963 and he won the Nobel Peace Prize the following year. The I Have a Dream speech is considered one of the greatest speeches ever given. It was ranked by American scholars as the top speech of the 20th century, which uh, means it beat out the ask not what your country can do for you speech of President Kennedy's inaugural address. And this last fact I thought was particularly interesting because I have a tiny, tiny little connection to this. Um, George Raveling was a college basketball player from Villanova and he was in attendance the day of the speech. Um, he was asked to assist on stage as a bodyguard for Dr. King. And uh, after the speech, King gave him his copy of the speech um, as a memento. And he has it locked away in a safe. He's been offered as much as $3 million for the copy, but he refuses to sell it. Now, the little connection I have is that later on, George Raveling went on to become the head basketball coach at the University, I think it was Washington State University, and I got a recruiting letter from him. <laughs> <laughs> However, there was no way on God's green earth that I was gonna go to Washington State from Indiana. Um, so I didn't really respond. I am now going to play for you a video of the entire speech. It's not long. It's about 17 minutes long. And I think it's important that we listen to this and especially to hear it from the perspective of being roughly 50 years further down the road from when the speech was given originally. Um, but just to kind of have a, an opportunity to reflect on um, his words and think about them in terms of today. And actually, I think let's um, cut the lights so that it'll be a little bit easier to see this because it's, uh, it's grainy. The video is not good quality. As I said, this was 50 years ago. There was no such thing as HD. Um, but the, uh, the audio is clear and you can hear him and, uh, and see everything, so.
At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize the shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Justice is bankrupt. 
We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment, this sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro has granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place. We must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny.
they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. And some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal.
have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. Yeah. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty of thee i sing land where my fathers died land of the pilgrims pride from every mountainside let freedom ring and if america is to be a great nation this must become true and so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of new hampshire let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, 
we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Turn the lights back on, please. Many of the things that Dr. King spoke of have changed. I think he would be pleased in many respects to gaze upon our current society where there are so many places that whites and blacks do stand together as brothers. But he would also stand in a time that in one respect has scarcely changed at all. Since he spoke about it, and not in 1963, but in 1956. It was then that he said, you must face the tragic fact <clears throat> that when you stand at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning to sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name and dear Lord and Father of all mankind, you stand in the most segregated hour of Christian America. That, I believe, is still true. And it's still not right. Again, in Dr. King's words, segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we all have in Christ. Now, almost 60 years after he spoke those words, churches are finally beginning to wake up to the need to be multi-ethnic. There has been some progress made. The latest statistics show that a scant 7% of American churches can be considered diverse. And so in 2015, Harmony Vineyard Church will embark on a journey to become part of that scant percentage. We will strive to live up to our vision of bringing all people to Jesus. This does not mean all in the sense of each and every person inhabiting the earth, but all in the sense of being intentional about sharing the gospel and healing people who are white, black, brown, and yellow. Now a fair question to ask as one embarks upon this journey is, when will we know we've arrived at our destination? After studying the subject for the better part of a year and reading many books written about diverse churches, I've come up with my own definition. It's one of the nice things about writing a dissertation. They actually let you give your own opinions. And so we will be a diverse multi-ethnic church when the following five things are in place. There will be some type of a quantitative measurement 
with ethnic, ethnic diversity being present at a significant level, one that at least represents the community's demographics. Now, most of the time, that number is 20%, because there is a number, there, um, there is a synergy that occurs when you have at least 20% um, of a different ethnicity present within a church. And so that's, at least for now, what we're going to shoot for. Second, when we have intentional inclusivity with different ethnicities being represented at all levels of leadership within the church. Third, an environment that affirms and supports diversity. Oops, here we go. Um, and by environment, what I mean is a place that doesn't, you, you would walk into it and you wouldn't immediately, by just the things that you see looking around you, go, oh, this is a white church. Now, Karen can attest to the fact that this year I tried to find a nativity scene that was diverse. It is not easy to do. <laughs> so I'll keep looking. And if anybody, any of you ever f come across one, go ahead and get it, and I will repay you for it. But, you know, it just speaks to how difficult it is. Uh, and, and, and so this whole idea of environment is about making sure that when we have images, we have images that are diverse. And when we use pictures in places, we have pictures that are diverse and, and so forth. Fourth, a vision or a mission statement that formalizes the church's stated goals of being a multi-ethnic church, which that I do believe we have achieved. And number five, the pursuit of racial re reconciliation within the church. Now, as we undertake this task, please understand that I, not for a moment, think in any way that I am equal to Dr. King. I did not have to go through what he went through. But I do share his dream, at least a small part of it where I think I can make a difference. And over the next several months, through sermons and some seminars that I'm going to invite you all to attend, I hope I can persuade you that you too can make a difference. Because realizing Dr. King's dream, or at least our small share of it, is not at its core about definitions. The definition will tell us when we've reached our goal, but it will do very little to help us get there. but you will. You hold the power to sustain the dream or to stifle it. It only takes one person to have a dream, but it will take all of us to make it a reality. Will you join with me in turning our little corner of the world into something resembling heaven on earth? Because together we can do this. Together we can build not my church, not your church, but God's church. And together as a family, we can all hear the words of our master when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Come and share your master's happiness. Amen.
Let's stand. I'd like to have some of the prayer team come up and uh, be available. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the soaring rhetoric of Dr. King. I thank you for that gift that you gave him that can so inspire the rest of us. Father, not, not let us not look upon the, his words as simply words spoken a long time ago. but as words that in many ways can still be meaningful for us today. Father, we come before you and we confess that it is just simply wrong to sit here on Sunday mornings and to think we are a picture of your church when we all look the same. Help us in this time to correct that. We pray that you would bring alongside us people that would be willing to assist us in this endeavor. Father, I, right now, I just thank you for Karen and Elias Willis who had faith in me in the beginning. I thank you for their perseverance and their friendship. Now bless us all as we go forth from this place. Help us to be your hands and feet in a world that is so in need. Guide us and direct us in each and every step we take and bring us back here safely when we can celebrate your presence in our lives once again. We give you thanks and praise, Father, and I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.